but it comes. It always comes. So let's open up our Bibles to the book of Matthew chapter 25 and let's pray. Father God, uh, I don't want to rush things, but, um, you know, uh, at the end of the year, I realize that uh, I only have 24 hours in a day. So that means I have to be serious about what I do with it, that time. And uh, Lord God, at the end of this life into the next life, uh, that's going to be an issue. It's going to be an issue, what I did with my time. And I want us to remember that, not as a threat, because you know what? Good parents don't threaten their children, and you're a good parent. But I would say this, a good parent tells the truth to their kids and reminds them of things that are important constantly. And I pray, Lord God, that you would remind us uh, that you would transform our minds and our hearts and our thinking. And I pray, Lord God, that, uh, that 2024 would be even better than we could imagine. But we, we turn over 2024 for you to do it the way you want to do it, not the way that I want to do it. Because, Lord God, you know why, and I do know that I want you to be blessed in my life. So that's all. That's all I got, Lord God. I'm just uh, asking this. We're asking this in Jesus' name. Amen? Um, all right, this is one of the last um, sets of parables that Jesus gives. You have to understand that this is during Holy Week. That means that time's up. When Jesus comes in and gives a sermon on the mount, it's almost like, who's ever played that game perfection? You ever played that game perfection? Where I, my kids used to do it all the time. They'd finish it in minutes. I'd be like, and uh, you turn on the timer and you got to put these things in there. And you can hear it going. And then eventually you're like right at that pop and it comes up. And it's like once that pop comes up, it's, it's all over. Game's done. Where you are, you're, you're done. Um, that's what happened at the Sermon on the Mount. It was almost like Jesus put the timer on. And it was like tick, 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 tick. And nobody wanted to recognize that eventually the timer comes to that zero mark of pop. Game's over. This is it. This is, the, this is where the, the game comes to an end. Literally, what is awaiting that generation after this set of circumstances and sermons and parables uh, is the wrath of the lamb. You don't really always think of a, a lamb as being wrathful. But I assure you, wrath comes for those who reject the lamb. That's how God brings judgment. He says, if you don't want, I'll let you have what you desire. So he's speaking to the crowd and he says, at that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps, but they did not take any oil with them. The wise ones, however, took oil jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming. That's a, it's a clue right there. He's saying, don't expect me to come when you expect me to come. It's almost like he goes out of his way to say, expect me when you don't expect me. The bridegroom was a long way in coming, and they all became drowsy, and they fell asleep. At midnight, a cry rang out, the bridegroom, the bridegroom has come, come out to meet him. And all the virgins woke up and trimmed their lamps. The foolish ones said to the wise ones, give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise ones replied, no, there may not be enough for both of us, instead Go to those who sell oil, buy some for yourselves. But while they were still on their way to buy oil, the bridegroom arrived. The virgins who were already waiting with oil went in with him, and the wedding banquet began. And then the doors were shut. Later, the others came also, the Lord said. But when they knocked on the door and said, will you open the door for us? He replied, listen. I tell you the truth, I do not know you. Therefore, keep watch, be 
because you do not know when the day or the hour comes. You know, there's there's this aspect of God that we um, we demand him to be. And one of the things that I learned from the very beginning is that salvation is an abandonment of me demanding God to be in a specific way or a certain way. And I have to receive him for who he says he is. And I have to worship him for who he is, not just what I like. Um, there's a part of me that I, I've learned to not only just like, you know, like I say, I, I grew up 57. Yeah, and I grew up in a house where, you know, we, you know, we kind of learned that there was a little kid there. No, I don't want to say it. Um, uh, we learned that Christmas gifts came from our parents. And sometimes there wasn't a whole lot of money for Christmas gifts. And if you wanted something, you had to work. And uh, there was no fairy tales in my house. So we kind of learned to deal with the realities of life. And you know what? You didn't cry about it, but you just kind of like ate it like bland oatmeal. You're like, but this is the way it is. Um, one of the things that I could say about coming into a salvific relationship with the Lord is me receiving unpleasant aspects of the personality and character of God but not just choking it down, like, well, what am I supposed to do? It's just the way it is. I somehow find, by the Holy Spirit's grace and his, his gifting alone, I find a reason to praise the Lord in it. Uh, because for me to really connect in an eternal way with God, he has to be God. Sometimes we have this idea, well, if I just bring God down here, I'm going to embrace him easier. It doesn't satisfy the soul. We were created for a soulmate. And sometimes we look for that soulmate in the eyes of a beautiful woman or a handsome young man. We look for that soulmate in the eyes of our children or on our job or in our possession, all these things. But that's not the soulmate. The soulmate that we were created for was our creator. Right? And if we don't find that soulmate in him, what we're doomed to is groping and grasping and chasing and running on a treadmill and then eventually losing everything and cursing God for it. We're at the end of 2024. And I think to myself, or 2023, we're not that far yet. Um, but I see, by the end of this year, I feel like we could possibly even be at the, the precipice of starting another service. God was waiting to do this the whole time. He's bringing everything into order and everything into... But my question is, if that's true, what does it mean for you? Because sitting and observing is not going to work. It's not. That means I have to say, here I am. Send me. Do with me what you want to do. So where do I stand the post? Where do I go? What do I do next? How do I try and how do I prepare? Because I feel like this is going to, this is going to, it's going to be our future here. This is going to be a church where we're going to have two services and it's going to be 200 people. I don't, I don't want to, I'm not a prophet and I'm not a uh, uh, sinfully uh, uh, boasting about things I do not know, but I'm confident and I'm optimistic that the gospel in the later days will proceed with power because what he's going to do is he's going to take away all the diversions that silence and distract the true singers. And for me, there's a lot of distractions out there. You know, when I think that, well, you know, it, it's kind of about me. It's about my retirement. It's about this. It's about that. It's about putting money in the bank account. It's about what's going to happen. It's about me enjoying, you know, the things around me. And yes, there's parts of it. There's parts of God's plan for that. But the reality is these things fade and they dissipate. What's coming next will stay forever. And that's what I have to remember and remind myself. So I thought to myself, today we need to talk about time. Time is a very precious commodity. You know why it's precious? Because it doesn't last forever. 
It's not limitless. Time is a mechanism. And I had to look up what the word mechanism meant because I thought I knew, and I did kind of. But listen to what it means. It, it is a production and creation of God that he uses to effect change. He uses it to produce a purpose. So I saw time as a two-sided coin, just like repentance and faith. Can't have faith without repentance. Can't have repentance without faith. They come together. God uses time to sanctify me. That's a word we probably, who's heard that word before, sanctify? It's kind of a word where if you kind of grew up in a legalistic, legal-based church, you're like, oh, no, here it comes. You know, oh, man, get ready to eat that nasty oatmeal. But it's not. It's really not. Um, it is when I think of sanctification as something that God forces on me. But when I see God as the loving father that he is, the soulmate of my life, I see him producing things in, in me that really are good for me. And one day you'll look back and you'll go, man, am I grateful that you did this. Has anyone ever done that before? Where you're like, man, somebody was telling you your whole life, listen, pay attention, pay attention, do this, do this. And you're like, ah, get out of here. And then, you know, you look back and you're like, wow. This is 25 years. I wish I would have listened. You know, I did that when I first started with sanitation. I was in that garbage truck. It was 80. It was uh, 98 degrees, 117 in my truck. It smelled like death. And all I could think of was people saying, pay attention in school. And you go, ah, school's for suckers. You know. Well, anyway, so time in the life of a chosen, in the chosen, and I want you to remember that you're chosen. If you're here because you believe in Jesus Christ, you did not pick him. He said, I chose you to go and bear fruit, and in doing so, giving honor to my Father. To some people, that goes right over their head, and I can't make them embrace it. But for me, that's something that's really precious. You know, I can remember in eighth grade because I was such a thorn in the side of my teachers, there was one teacher who said to me, Fitzmaurice, you will only serve to be no effect in this world. You know why? I was not a great student. I was not someone that you wanted to have in class. The only thing you're ever going to make an effect in this world, no one's going to choose you. And you know what? I was like, who cares? Uh, what do you know? You only teach math, you know? But um, when Christ picked me, chose me, man, it, it was in spite of years and years of not doing things that mattered, kind of foolishly living my life, not caring about time, focusing on things that didn't matter. And when he chose me, I knew in an instant he didn't choose me because I was beautiful, because I wasn't. He didn't choose me because I was impressive, because I wasn't. He didn't choose me because of something that he knew that I could produce. He chose me for no other reason. I chose him. And every time I want to quit or I want to hedge my investment, Toward God, I always go back to that truth, and it makes a difference in my life. I want you to remember, for us who are his chosen, time is a waiting room, time can be an oven, or time can be a gymnasium. Time is used by God in my life to strip me of me. He uses time to grow me into a better reflection of him. But I want to give you the opposite side of that coin. Remember I said it always accomplishes what God wanted, invented, and created it for. In the life of those who are not called, to those who are self-deceived, to those who are hostile, or to those who are ambivalent, time will be used to strip them, these unfortunate people, of any excuse when they stand before God in judgment. Romans chapter 1, verse 18 tells us, There will be no defense. 
No one gets to say, I didn't know. I never was told. It doesn't matter. You can't hold me accountable because I was ignorant. Time will be used to reveal the things that are hidden in our hearts. It will be used to fully demonstrate the intention of my heart. As scripture says and shows, it will be used to separate wheat from the chaff. Now, why do I tell that to people that I'm confident are saved? Because everything provides for me an example. I look and I go, man, that's a beautiful example. I want to follow that example. I want to do those things. But then I see other behaviors and I go, man, I don't want to follow that example. You know, in in, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, it tells us that the whole Testament, the Old Testament, is given to us as an example. These people had grace. They had a different relationship with God. But the truth of the matter is, there's things when you read the Old Testament, you're like, man, I really want to follow that. I really want to emulate that in my life. And then there's things where you look and you're like, oh, Israel, how could you have done this? And then that's an example for me to not follow it. Amen? All right. So I want to say this. The world and its desires will pass away, but whoever does the will of God lives forever. That is a fundamental truth about time. 1 John chapter 2, verse 17. John, Jesus speaking in chapter 9, verse 4, says, As long, now listen, this is Christ. He says, As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. For night is coming when no one will work. Once again, David is speaking, but Jesus is using him as a microphone. In Psalm 31, he says, my times are in your hands. Deliver me, O Lord, from the hands of my enemy, my oppressor, those who pursue me. Then in Psalms 90, it tells me this. David, again, this one, he's speaking on his own. He says, teach me to number my days correctly that I may gain a heart of wisdom. Man, I'm telling you. We need to pay attention to time. It is a precious commodity, but once it's gone, it's gone. And it's going to do what it's supposed to do. It's not like God goes, well, I'm going to throw it up in the air and see what happens. It's going to accomplish what he wants it to accomplish. That means I have to pay attention. These verses tell me four things. Are you ready for them? Here it is. First thing it tells me, is that time is God's possession, and it has been given to me to invest. Every minute of my day is given to me as a gift, and it's intended for me to invest properly. I can't go through this because there'd be an exhaustive, uh, uh, an inexhaustive list of things I feel is right to do in certain circumstances. But I want you to understand, it's enough for me to know that every time my eyes open up, I have a 24-hour period in which God intends for me to invest properly. Okay? So I can't just squander my time. Second thing, it teaches me that my time is precious because it is fleeting. Once it is gone, it is gone for good. So it's never a great idea for me to just kind of float through. I must be intentional. Third, it teaches me, and I know that you who are following Christ know this to be true, there are active distractors and distractions that are designed to oppose my use of time wisely. You know what I'm saying? There's always these things that catch my eye. Like I say, I'm like that dog in the movie Up. I'm walking and I'm like, and it's like, hey, squirrel! There's a thousand sparkly things that are designed to get me to go, wait, that's the way I should go. No, no, no. I have to be disciplined in my mind and thought. I have to develop these things. Discipline and me have never been good friends. But I want to say, if I'm going to persevere, I have to start to develop discipline. Here's the fourth one. My relationship with my creator determines the investment upon, my er, uh, upon this earth. I want you to think about this. We oftentimes think of, this is theological, it's a theological point. We often think of eternal life as something that comes when we die. I don't see that that's true. God uses words like thin veil. That means it's going on around us. We're going to walk into it. Every human being is working in two paradigms. 
The first is the here and now, the temporal, but the eternal is operating around us continually. So that means eventually temporal time, the here and now, is going to end and then I will step into eternity. Not skipping a heartbeat. There's what I mean? So I want to say this. You're like, okay, great. What does that mean? That means simply you're not saved by our actions. You're saved by Christ's actions. But the direction that I'm walking in will be the direction that I walk in in eternity. Does that make sense? That means I have to pay attention to my direction. I have to be attention, intentional about my time. No one knows when that time arrives, when this world will end and the next one will enter in. But if I'm walking in a determined and deliberate direction, it will continue into eternity. Can I tell you something? Even the pagans instinctively knew that. Boy, we've become super intelligent in our day and age, and we've gotten so smart, we're dumb. No, there's no eternity. It just ends. Really? Is that what life teaches you? It ends? Man, well, grade school, this is where it is, and that's where it stops. No, 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 then comes high school. Well, I don't need high school. It's four years at school. Let's just focus on that. Then comes work. There's always something that comes after. Life tells us. It's almost like putting a big, huge sign going, hey, listen, pay attention to your here and now because it's going to lead to somewhere else. Right? So I have to, we have to, as his chosen, we have to walk in a determined direction. So what does that mean? I want you to understand, if I'm going to persevere, I have to remember four things. Here they are. First thing is this. I have to remember that my salvation is a spiritual marriage to Christ and his adoption into his family. That is a preeminent thought and idea in my life. That means everything comes through that filter. It's not just an add-on. Jesus saved no one so you could add them into your life. Jesus came in to conquer and to be number one. And because he's graceful and generous, he allows other things to kind of filter in and order underneath him. But make no mistake, he's not willing to be just one of our pursuits. He's like, no, you were made for me. He's, you know, one of the things I realize as I'm walking with him, man, he is un, he is un, unwilling to let me share my heart with some other thing. He knows me better than me. You know, I told you, I don't know if I've said it a long time ago, I've, I, I've, uh, me and my wife can have great uh, relationships <laughs> with each other at times. Sometimes we fight like cats and dogs. And then sometimes we joke around with each other. And I said to her, I said, man, I just want to spend time with you. And she came out, she was dressed up, and she just really grinned. I go, wow, you look great. You know, and she goes, well, I don't want to become an idol for you. <laughs> and you know what's funny? It was true. The woman, easily be my idol. Been, been my idol my whole life. If I could see that woman going to make me feel what I miss and what I, you know what God does? He reminds me continually that this woman that I am connected to, chosen by God to be in partnership with it, she's never going to fill the void that you have. She's not intended to. And when I force her to be the one that makes the difference, I become frustrated and even more alone. God's like, listen, you're going to either find satisfaction in me or you are going to be doomed to very frustrated loneliness. Just saying. I'm just saying. One of the things that I've done from the very beginning is I won't water down the truth at all. You know why? Water down truth can't save you. It just can't. So because it is a, a salvific marriage, it's a marriage between me and Christ, I have to remember certain things about marriage. Marriage at first is very satisfying and it's very exciting. The excitement and the newness of it allows me to accept and overlook a great many themes. Anyone know what I'm talking about? 
You're like, oh, my gosh, this is just great. You get in a car accident. Who cares? You know what I mean? I can remember when I first met Tracy, and it was just so new. I used to have to take the 294 to go get her so she could have my car as I went to work downtown. And I got a flat tire in the middle of winter, and I had to change my tire in the snow as trucks were zipping by me on the 294. Did I curse it? No. I didn't care. I was going to my wife who was 12 years old. Oh, she was, she was, oh, her hair was beautiful. I didn't care. I just didn't care. I've been married for 29 years. <laughs> yeah. All that to say is this. Those things that excited me, they dissipated over the years. Anyone know what I'm talking about? As time goes by, the excitement wears off, the newness becomes routine, and everything that was easy to overlook now becomes a source of aggravation. Like, here's one. I used to think it was cute that my wife would order everything around. She'd be like, hey, let's put this over here, put this over here. Now I feel like she chases me around, so I put this down. She's like, this yours? I'm like, yeah, you just saw me put it down there. She's like, are those your shoes? I'm like, who else would have put those there? Are those your books? I'm like, yes, those are my books. Do they have to be there? I'm like, no, but I'd like them to be. <laughs> so once again, you know, we're not talking to her because she has a bigger list of those things that she used to think that, man, I, I don't really care if he's a half a slob. You know, I don't care if he's this way. It's like so new. It's, it's so exciting. It's cool with me. But after 29 years, those things ain't so cool anymore. So what does that mean for spiritual marriage with Christ? Here's what it means. Everyone who's in a spiritual marriage with God has had to deal with disappointments. Anyone here have a deal with disappointments? That you like sometimes ask, God, I thought you loved me. How could you let this happen? Here, discouragements, resentments, frustration, confusion. How many times can you say following God? You're like, God, I just, I got to be honest with you. This is utterly confusing to me. How could this have happened? Why is this going on for so long? I thought I understood. I thought you taught me the lesson. You love me. How could this keep going on? Anyone know what I'm talking about? Yeah. So that's the way it is with spiritual marriage with Christ. Anyone who has been a member of a spiritual family, and that's what we've been adopted to, has had to deal with hurt. You know why? Human beings hurt other human beings. You know? We've had to deal with disillusionment where, you know, so many times as a pastor, people go, well, I, I was serving here. Why was this person placed here when I've been here so long? And I don't always have the answers for them that they want to hear. It's just the way it is. When you're in a spiritual family, you have to deal with insults. You know why? Human beings insult each other. And you're like, God, this is your family. I hate when I hear Christians go, well, Christians should know better. Yes, we should know better, but that doesn't stop us from stepping on each other's toes. It's just the struggle. So you know what I've, I've learned to do? I've learned to accept the fact that I'm human, you're human, and God's sovereign and in control of all these things. And I've also learned to understand this and make this an issue, a preeminent issue in my life, is that I'm committed to you not because of what you do or what you can bring. I'm committed to you because I'm committed to you. I was given to you and you were given to me. We were brought together. This wasn't my idea. But one thing's for sure, just as God has chosen to love me with this kind of commitment, I think it's fair for me to pursue that same kind of love with the people around me. Amen? So let's keep talking about this for just a second, not to be a downer. Um, you know, I, I want to say that there's, there's two types of churches in, 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 the, in the body of Christ. There's a small church in which everybody knows each other. You kind of sit together, you know each other. This is what I would consider a small church uh, and it's a small church deal. But then there's a mega church. Do you know the mega church here? And I don't want to be critical of the mega church, but I'm going to be. Not that I know better because I don't know better. 
I don't know better. But when I see them, you know what I see? A mall. I don't know why I get that feeling. Why are they so appealing? Because they're well-programmed, they're well-staffed, they're well-systematized, and we, as Christians who go there, don't have to deal with the not-so-pleasant underbelly of church life. That means I could come, get as close as I want, take my order of Christ, and then go back to my life. The problem is, there's this premise that's wrong. When I got baptized, I no longer had to walk with Vinny Biggin to Christ. He purchased it. My life is not hidden anymore. See, I can't have that kind of mentality. That mentality is not Holy Spirit-driven. You know what that is? That's commercialism-driven. God designed for us to be together to step on each other's toes. Why? Because he will use time and humanity to, there's this word again, sanctify us. Right? Sometimes a church could be like an oven. Sometimes a church could be like a gymnasium. Sometimes the church could be like a waiting room. Amen? But you know what, though? God is in the mix of it all. He is sovereign and in charge. Perseverance is the only sure test of our salvation. That means I don't care how you start. You must finish. You must finish and desire to finish strong. That means I must speak to myself. About six months ago, this place, this is a beautiful thing. This is still like a honeymoon for me here. I'm like, I look at you, I'm like, you guys. I've been with Norwich for six years. And some of the people there, I'm like, oh, you guys. (laughs) You know what I thought? About six months ago when some things were happening, I'm like, you know what? This is so God-oriented. Go to Bible study or just be a good Christian that way. There's so much grace available. I don't see any verse in the Bible that tells me I can't do it. I would try to convince myself, hey, I can do God's grace as long as I'm still saved. But you know when that becomes a problem? When I know that God's called me somewhere else to do something, but I choose to do it that make sense? So I have to remind myself that I have to persevere. God has called me, picked me, chose me. He's done this to you as well, and he's got a design on our life. That means I have to be committed to the journey. I've got to be committed to the journey. I've got to say, I'm going to show up, and I'm not just going to show up to sit and observe and spectate, I'm going to be a participant. But this is messy. Yes, it's messy. This is a little bit oppressive at times. Yes, it is. Sometimes God will take some things away from our life to replace it with this thing in our life. And that hurts. Yeah? Last night they called me to come into work at 12 o'clock. I wouldn't work till 2. That's 16 hours of double time. That's a lot of money. But what am I going to do with that money when I march into eternity? Is it going to matter? What does it matter to me if I get that reward and it actually points me in another direction away from God's will? Is that really a blessing or has it now become a curse? Because it's a curse. It's the way I look at it. So I have to be intentional. I have to be intentional. So how can I do that? Here's one way. I must take responsibility for the vitality of my relationship with Jesus Christ. If my marriage at 30 years becomes lackluster, cold, no feeling, no emotion, no nothing, I can't blame her. I have to take responsibility myself. If my relationship grows cold with Christ, 
And I've heard this from so many people. As a matter of fact, one person left Norwich to go to another satellite of New Life. And their reason was, no one took interest in me. No one cared to take me through it. To which I said, wait a minute, there were three people that were there to take you through it. And even if there wasn't three people, was there a men's group? Could you be there? Well, I heard this from some of the young guys. I don't like the men's group. I don't know this and that. What are you doing in the men's group to make it better? Did you go to Lewis, the guy who's running it, and say, hey, man, how can I be here early to support you? How can I serve the men around me? When I look for you to be the thing to make me feel full, you will fail every time. When I look at you as my relationship and say, you know what, Jesus, I'm going to love you by loving them better. Somehow, everything I'm looking for, I get. Does that make sense? So I have to be intentional. I have to remind myself, I have to take responsibility for the vitality of my relationship with Christ. There's no blame shifting. Everything proceeds from my heart. And if Christ lives in my heart, there are four things that are going to happen. First is this. I'm going to desire the beautification of my character. I cannot, for the life of me, be okay when someone says, well, I know that that's wrong, but, you know, that's just me. Man, I have struggles with anger, big time. Man, I never met an enemy I didn't want to hate. You know? But I can't just say, well, that's just me. It's okay. Oh, I have to learn to surrender and be transformed by letting go. Here's another one. I realize that if I'm called and I'm going to be responsible for my own relationship, that I'm going to pursue harmony in my home. That means I'm not the boss. I'm a servant leader. I'm going to serve my family. My wife wants one major thing for me. Patience and, well, this is huge. Patience and gentleness. I hate to be gentle. Force always works better. Not with Jimmy V. Here's another one. I have to desire and pursue order in my habitual operations. That means things must be a part of a system of importance. You know, one of the things that God does in this sanctification, he reorders us. He's like, these are good things, but you've put them out of order. They now have to come in the proper order. And when that happens, the fourth thing happens as a product of it. I'm at peace with the world around. That means I don't feel I need to fight anymore. If I look around and I say to myself, I've got turmoil in my life, in a lot of areas, it's because my relationship with my first love is not where it should be. That's just a fact. Just a fact. So I have to be serious about pursuing uh, 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 vitality in my relationship. How do I do that? Here's one way. I remember that Jesus is my gift. I am not following Jesus to get a gift. He is my gift. When I drive uh, through the day, one of the things that comes through to me as, as I'm listening to a sermon or I'm thinking is I have everything that I want in him. He's the gift of my if I want to feel full, because that's what I want to feel. I want my heart to be full. Does anyone know what I'm talking about? It's like I can't stand half empty. I need to have overflowing fullness. And you know what? I search, search, and search. Only he is the one who can give it to me. So therefore, I must remember that he's my gift. He's my gift. My circumstances may change. Things go up, down. I may have a lot or I may have a little. But you know what? Never depart from me. Never. You know what? I can fail him a hundred times. 
if I need to recognize and stop and come back in, he welcomes me into his presence that never changes. You know, it's a beautiful thing. There's another aspect of that. I have to remember that I cannot limit his feelings. The feelings, one of the things that God uses in relationship to him is he uses sensory words like taste, drink, feel, embrace. Why? Because God desires intimacy with us in a way. Now, I know this is going to sound crazy. The bliss between a husband and wife when they're at their most intimate place. You know what I'm talking about. That's a theological doctrine. That this thing that we're supposed to have with him is supposed to fill us to the core. That's why I always looked for women because I thought only they could give me that. But I realize now only God can give me the bliss that I desire. I listen to a guy named David Crowder and various artists. I don't like all the worship that there is out there. I think like Caleb, I don't know if you like it or not, whatever, it's okay. But I feel like it's all mass produced. It's like pop. What I'm looking for is someone, when they sing, they're revealing to you a depth of intimacy that you can enter into. I want to give you these lyrics that I got the other day. Well, it was Wednesday. It was Wednesday at work. And I was really searching for the nearness of God, man. I was empty. I felt alone. I felt dry. I'm tired. And I'm like, I know that only you can give me that satisfaction. And this song comes on on my feed. It says, it's called uh, All Around Me. And it goes like this. It says, my hands are searching for you. My arms are outstretched toward you. I feel you on my fingertips. My tongue dances behind my lips for you. This fire rises through my being, burning red hot. You consume me. My hands float up above me as you whisper, you love me. And I begin to fade into our secret place. The music makes me shiver as I hear the young girl say, we are alone, my dear. I can feel you all around me, sinking into the air I'm breathing holding on to what I'm feeling, gazing in this heart that's beating. Do you believe that God is touching you right now? Or do you eat your faith like that oatmeal that you know is healthy, but it tastes like poop? I refuse to touch that. I refuse. You know what Paul said? If you think another religious pursuit of doing so that you get him said, you should be pitied more than any human being. Man, I want the fullness. You want to persevere? You better find ways where you and him and you're so close you can feel his touch. And when you do that, I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. The first thing that's going to happen is you're going to can tell you, the patience that my wife longs for, man, it's not something that I'm white-knuckling trying to give her when I'm in that place. I give it to her. Perfect, perfect example. We were rearranging the house. Who of men loves to rearrange the house? No one. Hey, let's move that over here. No, no, let's move that over here. Let's get that over here. Let's bring it back. You're like, oh my God, could you just please pick so I could go back to watching football? Hey, let's Let's bring this big, huge 900-pound nine, chair into your other room and then goes, hey, you know what? I made a mistake. Let's bring that back here. But I did it yesterday without complaining, without even holding on and like white-knuckling it to get through. Why? Because I felt some of what my wife felt. My wife just wants her house, like every woman does, to be harmonized to be beautiful, to be optimal. And she's like, I know it's there. I'm not a woman, but I'm not right on that one. If I were a woman, I'd be one ugly woman. 
but I felt a little bit of what she was feeling. And I was eager to participate, even as a group, even as just neighbor, I was okay with it. All right. So I need to seek out regular routines that remind me of his beauty, his desirability, and his love for me. That means this 2024, let's just do it because we got 21 days. Go for a walk. Look around. Take long rides in your car where you look and you see. Like one of the things is go out to Gurney Mills. Drive. Look around. Go uh, past the Forest Preserve. Take North Avenue out as far as you can go and come back. Don't get the response. Wait a bit. Wait a bit. You're embracing the beautiful aspects that God created. If I'm understanding it correctly, God created this world to be an arena for me and him to have intimate fellowship with each other. Is that not beautiful? When you're around other people, see the beauty of their character. Enjoy when you, when you eat a meal. Who likes to eat here? Embrace it. See, this is a beautiful gift. That's how Paul gauged contentment, whether he had much or whether he had little. You know why? He knew it was all a gift from God. Amen? All right. Let's stand up. I want to just say this. This is the last point, and it's real simple. If I'm going to persevere... I have, to know, know, I have to learn how to love my neighbor in spite of their humanity. That means I must be committed to you because I'm committed to you, just like Jesus is committed to me. I want us to be that church. You know why? Because there are people who are aching out there. Aching. They are alone they have no hope because there's nothing to point to a glorious future. When they come in here, they should feel something that they knew exists, but they only heard about. And some people will come they will never, ever leave because they will find what they're looking for. But you have to do it. And you know how that is? You be committed to me and the persons around just for them. So I want you to remember these things as we worship. How I long to breathe the air of heaven where pain is gone and mercy fills the streets to look upon the one who bled to save me and walk with him for all eternity. There will and there will be a day when all bow before him. There will be a day when death will be no more. Standing face to face with He who died and rose again, holy, holy is the Lord. And every prayer we prayed in desperation, the songs of faith. We sank through doubt and storm. In the end, we'll see that it was worth it when He returns to wipe away our tears. And there will be a day when all will bow before Him. There when death will be no more standing face to face with he who died and rose again holy holy
And on that day we join the resurrection and stand beside the heroes of the faith. And with one voice, a thousand generations sing worthy is the Lamb who was slain. On that day, and on that day, we join the resurrection. We stand beside the heroes of the faith with one voice a thousand generations sing worthy is the lamb who was slain forever he shall reign so let it be today we shout the hymn of heaven with angels and the saints, we raise a mighty roar and glory to our God, who gave us life beyond the grave. Holy, holy is the Lord. Holy, holy is the Lord. And Um, we're, um, we're, we're, on the, we're on the verge, we're growing so much that when Jason and Mackenzie come back, we're going to have another member of the family. <laughs> so what I wanted to do is I wanted all of us, because I'm just going to be, there's no holy man here. You know who 